Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. Welcome back. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and to kick off Season 2, I will be talking to Dr. James B. Stein, the Interim Chair of the Communications Department at Dixie State University in Utah. Dr. Stein, or James, is also Jucifer on TikTok, and he tackles feminist content by addressing the issue with men and their communication. Welcome. And uh, can you introduce yourself for us? Dr. James B. Stein. I am currently an assistant professor and also the interim department chair of the communication department at a university now currently uh, referred to as Dixie State University. However, we are changing our name. And as of July 1st, we will be Utah Tech University. It's in Southern Utah. My TikTok handle is Jucifer spelled J-3-W-C-I-F-E-R, so like Lucifer, but Jucifer. And those are two different hats that I wear, although the Venn diagram of those two hats, there's some overlap to them, obviously. Yeah. And what are your pronouns? Oh, thank you for asking. My pronouns are he and him. So can you explain the Jucifer? I mean, I first saw it and I thought it was rather funny. Yeah, so I was raised atheist. And I found out about um, the satanic panic just a couple of years ago. I, I really did a deep dive into it. And I thought it was awful the way that people were, in some cases, incarcerated. Like I, I think about, for example, the West Memphis Three, the way that people had their lives destroyed because of propaganda, specifically related to Abrahamic consumerism propaganda, which I really did not care for at all. Yeah. And slowly but surely, uh, as I read and as I listened to other podcasts, I found that I more so identified with the ironic and disruptive nature of Satanism than anything else. I don't think I'm ready to call myself a Satanist. I think putting yourself in, in a box like that would be against the tenets of Satanism as constructed by those who, you know, uh, currently prop it up. Mm -hmm. But I think if I had to, if I had to pick something, it would be that not because of anything that I especially believe in, but because I very much enjoy being disruptive. And I think that that's one of like the main, the main approaches of that perspective. I like that it kind of ties into what you've studied and what you practice right now, because you did study communications and having a PhD in it. I mean, uh, it's, it's one of those, I find because I have done majority of my studies in journalism, communications and gender studies, people are like, oh, communications, what's that about? But what uh, motivated you to go into this and then into the kind of space that you're in fighting misogyny? Yeah. So I was originally going to go into marketing Mm -hmm. uh, I quickly learned that it was just not for me, which is to say that I don't, it, it's not, it was not for the version of me that was in my late teens and early twenties. I think oh. now that I'm in my thirties and I'm a little bit more confident and settled in myself, I probably could go back and do something like marketing. But at that point it was a depression factory and I, I couldn't be a part of it. It was going to destroy my mental health. Oh. And uh, being someone who comes from a great deal of privilege, I sat down with my parents and I said, look, I, I really want to pursue graduate school. Uh, the only thing that ever spoke to me at all were my upper division communication classes. 
And so I kind of just started from there with no understanding or training of what it was to even be an academic. But, you know, you grow into it. And when you're passionate about something, you, you know, you put in the, uh, you put in the work and I got lucky at a couple of turns and that ended up resulting in me getting onto the path of becoming the, the person who I am now. And then that making that transition into where I am on TikTok was both accidental and deliberate. Uh, and I say that because I always, all throughout grad school, I had a deep passion for public scholarship. I think it's unfair the way that academia hoards the information from the people that they study. It makes no sense to yeah. me. So, you know, I was always, you know, I was, I was tapping here and there. I was tapping. I was, I was, I, I did a little blog and then, you know, I, I started up a little, uh, a little thing here, a little thing there. I have my own little podcast that I do with my university. And then I noticed during my time on TikTok, which I, by the way, I got on TikTok because I felt like I was losing touch with my students. I, I wasn't up to date with the lingo. And so I said, well, all right, fine, I'll download TikTok. I noticed that there are just a lot of people distilling incorrect information about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, I cannot be quiet about this. And then one thing led to another. Mm. And all of a sudden, now I have like a responsibility. <laughs> As soon as you you find that kind of mantle, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. I have a great responsibility to do right by my followers and this movement that is behind me or the knowledge that came before. So I, I fully get you. But it's also, I find that TikTok has become a platform that lends itself towards activism, aside from its moderation practices, <laughs> its dubious yeah. moderation practices. So was it easy or, or difficult to navigate? I thought it was very easy to navigate. I'm, you know, I'm what you might call a geriatric millennial. So I have intense knowledge of, of technology and also a little bit of that like Gen X, like kind of pen and paper mentality to me as well. Same. And so for me, it was just being creative and playful with the material that I kick out, finding out what people like and making sure that I stay uh, academically honest. Although I'll admit, I'm the first one to admit that sometimes the messages that I deliver are just a little, uh, maybe a little too petty from time to time. <laughs> But I, we can talk about why I've chosen to take that approach later, if you'd like. Uh, Ooh, but no, I found absolutely. the process quite easy. It, it just came very, very naturally. I've never felt like I've had to like work really hard to grow my followers. I just keep putting out the same content that I would normally put out. Mm -hmm. And being like a TikTok creator is very much like reckoning with your own humility, because what will happen is for mm. like two or three months, there will be no growth, no growth. In fact, you'll lose followers. And then what will happen, you'll have this huge swell and you get 10, 20. I, my last swell got me about 90,000 followers. Wow. Um, I know it was, it was crazy. And then what happens is you get 90,000 followers and of those 90,000, a couple of thousand of them are like, wait, I don't like this guy. He's kind of a bum. I'm not a fan. And so then they leave. And when the algorithm sees that, it does not get happy. And so yeah. then you have to deal with this like reset, which I'm now just emerging from on my channel. And then you just, you know, I'm just going to, I just keep putting stuff out and then eventually one of them blows up and then the, the process happens all over again. Yeah. The bulk of your content is quite relationship oriented, but leaning towards feminism. And that's what, uh, one of the mm -hmm. reasons I wanted to chat with you. And this is something that I ask all men who are feminist or feminist allies, what turned you into a feminist? Um, was there a turning point think, even? I don't know if there was a turning point. I think that it was a long drawn out process of, you know, because just a quick backstory, I grew up in a very conservative household uh, and I, there were for, I'd say the first 
19 years of my life, I was actively anti-feminist. Why? Because I didn't understand what feminism was. I didn't, I, the only people who had told me what feminism was were anti-feminists. And so when I went to graduate school, I was able to take critical cultural classes and feminist classes so that I could learn about the theories from the people who wrote the theories, which is like, when you think about it, you're like, well, of course, that's who you would want to learn it from, right? Of course. And so those readings in combination with the ability to interact with people whose life story differed from mine was instrumental in shifting my worldview because you know, when you grow up listening to one thing your whole life, and then you completely uproot and learn from people who are completely different from you, it ought to change the way that you view the world. And, and that's what happened with me, but it took about six years. <laughs> so yeah. it, it wasn't a moment, you know, it, you turn around one day and you're like, oh, I don't even recognize the person who I used to be because that person was far less educated and just, you know, and, and that's how growth works. It is. I found myself like I, I grew up in an activist household, so completely the opposite. And yeah. feminist, like I, I was raised to be a feminist by a feminist, by mm -hmm. two feminists. And looking at, at how people come into their feminism, like I find mm -hmm. that what I was raised with is now completely different to what my mom practiced when she was a young activist yes. as well. So it's completely different worlds, but within the same realm. And mm -hmm. that not, not recognizing that person you were is like, oh, I realized very early on, I was a little bit of a white feminist, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, I mean, that's how it starts, yeah. right? You progress. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I think part of that is because the early waves of feminism, like the first and second waves, feminism and activism related to feminism traditionally comes from scholarship and research. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at those earlier waves of feminism, the only people who had the power and ability to write those feminist works were white men and then later on white women. Yes. And so at least here in the West, when when we finally encountered, you know, women like uh, Patricia Hill Collins or Bell Hooks, you know, even even, you know, scholars like Judith Butler, like, you know, people who when I read them, I I had my entire worldview flipped on its head uh -huh. in different ways. You know what I mean? Like, it's such an aggressive approach for a white guy to be reading the works of Bell Hooks. And you sit there and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh no, because what they explain, they use history to couch their explanations. And mm -hmm. then you fact check it and the facts line up with the things that they're saying and not the things that you were taught your whole life. I do think it's always very interesting to see when people are raised right wing, like I was, mm -hmm. as they encounter more information and education, they tend to move toward something like intersectional feminism. But what we don't see is people who were raised in that environment then shifting to the right. And I, I think that the reason that we don't see that too much is because in the former, you've got someone being exposed to new worldview altering information. And in the latter, that additional information that you might be exposed to, well, it's just not rooted in fact or, or history. Yes. And so it's just easy to debunk when you can see it. When It's when you can't see it, that that's when it becomes a problem. And that's what I try and tackle on TikTok. And that to me is amazing because you handle the content that you do so well in that your responses are usually spot on. So how is it that you handle those kinds of the sensitive content that you're doing, especially when it comes to the trolls? Because the, this is pressure points in society. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few factors at play here. The first one is the behind the scenes factor. When I go to make content, especially about sensitive issues, like for example, trans people, or, you know, if I want to talk about, you know, I'm definitely more 
situated in feminism because of my relationship research orientation. But when I try and talk about things like race, like the first thing I do is I talk to my mutuals, I talk to other creators, and I talk to people who do research on the subjects. Okay. And I ask them, I'm thinking about saying this. Is, this, is this a good way to say it? Is this what you would say? And then sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no, and I can adjust my opinion accordingly. So I'm not shy to admit that I turn to the people who were my teachers and ask them for help. There's also the fact that being a, let's see, let's list them, white, moderately wealthy, well-to-do man from privilege, uh, in a position of power, with an education, like you factor all of those elements of privilege together and you create a, I'm going to use the word character, you create a character who it's very hard to attack. I don't get a lot of trolls. And a lot of that has to do with my privilege. When I do get trolls, they don't last long because they have so few things to attack. I think about it from like a queer theory perspective where there are so few things that can be used to queer me. That, and this is why they turn to saying things like beta or simp because they can't turn to the melanin content in my skin. They cannot turn to my genitalia. They can't turn to my socioeconomic status. So they desperately need to find something to turn to. And because there's so little there, they're not used to hearing someone who looks and comes from my background speaking on the issues that I'm speaking on. And I think that that is the, that's the thing I really try and keep in my mind as I do these videos, reminding myself that being in the body that I am is an important part of delivering this message. And then finally, there's the humiliationism of it. I say things to these men that I believe that I needed to hear when I was a teenager because presenting them with facts and logic should be done. But there is always a way to spin that if you can present it in a way that is humiliating, deeply, truly humiliating without, you know, attacking their physical appearance or, you know, engaging in ad hominem. If you can really, truly embarrass them, it sticks with them. And ideally, it makes them think. And if I can just use that humiliationism to take a couple of their followers, right? Because some of these people have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers. If I can just pluck a couple here and there, then then I'm doing my job as an educator. Uh-huh. I find, especially being a moderator on Left Talk, mm-hmm. I, I see so many trolls doing the whole beta cuck simp kind of argument. And I just find it so weak. <laughs> like, is this all you have? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is weak. And I, uh, that was going to be my next question. Like, how do you actually deal with the trolls themselves? This is, this is an interesting one because in going through your videos, I realized the content is far more centered on how men should behave in a relationship. So in that regard, what spectrum of like, in terms of the waves, in terms of the belief system, where does your feminism lie and how does it relate to men in particular? Yeah. So, well, the first thing I'll say is that I am not a feminist scholar. I am just familiarized with the tenets of intersectional fourth wave feminism. So like, I don't write on it. I think that's an important distinction to make. And this is again, why I, (laughs) right. When I have a question, I turn to like the people who actually do research and I have that privilege, but my orientation of feminism is if my message is not actively attempting to unearth the struggles of not just women, but women of color and women of lower socioeconomic status and women who find themselves, uh, you know, women who are perhaps like, you know, plus size or, you know, are in some ways additionally marginalized and oppressed, then the message is incomplete. And as somebody who I, I refuse to call myself like an ally or an accomplice, I don't like using that terminology, but as somebody on the journey, I'll say the journey to allyship, 
It's something that I am constantly trying to get better at and trying to improve upon. Uh, one area where I messed up was uh, in, in some of the recent TikTok drama going on between two very large creators. I, I believe that, you know, in the videos that I made, I, I did my best to stay factually objective and speak only on issues that I knew to be true. And I still messed up because what I, I could not see through white woman tears. And even though it may still be that some of the specific actions that she said and that I mentioned in my videos are accurate, that doesn't matter uh -huh. if you are putting an indigenous creator in harm's way. Uh -huh. And there are better and different ways to bring attention to the misbehavior of, of individuals without actively putting them uh, in the risk of danger uh -huh. or violence. And so while I still stand by the things that I said, I regret the timeline with which I spoke and the ways in which I delivered my message. Uh -huh. But you have to stand by it, which is why I, I didn't take my videos down. And, and you know what, if people don't wanna listen to what I have to say because of that, that's it, 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 there's no one to blame but me for that one. Uh -huh. And so I think that's just one example of how I try to consistently improve and listen and do better. Uh, uh -huh. And sometimes I fail. I mean, I did uh, very much the same thing because I was listening to, to the one side and mm -hmm. then not having the other side to, com to compare against, you know, because that was that one video that was then subsequently taken down. Not being able to see through the white woman tears, I completely get you. I still stand by what I said in that not having full and fully informed consent is assault. Yeah, That I, was my entire point. It breaks well. my heart that the bifurcated nature of yeah. that discussion has completely thrown the important conversation of what informed consent is under the bus. And it's done so by conflating legal definitions of behaviors with mm. other, other scholarly forms. Of, so like, for example, when I talk about something like sexual coercion, I'm not talking about it in the legal sense. I'm talking about it from a communication perspective, mm. because of course I am, right? Because that's my training. And I think one of the things that I should have done better is articulate that I am not talking about legality. I'm talking about communication. And so I'm still getting people who are commenting being like, you're going to get sued for this. And I'm like, well, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think I'm going to get sued. And I didn't mean that anybody should be sued. So th there's only so much you can do to deal with that sort of thing. But it really did blow up in everybody's face. And now you're seeing a lot of really big creators in that space on TikTok temporarily deactivating because unbeknownst to all of us while this was happening, there were strategic concerted events by trolls and right-wing actors to try and eliminate or mass report some of the most sensitive creators on TikTok, some of the people who need protection. And while our defenses were down, they got attacked. And now we're trying to pick up the pieces. Yeah, I think a lot of large creators did fail in, the, in that regard. And even like, I have 4,000 followers. I mean, I'm, I'm not making a difference to the larger narrative. But it's still like you have to be on your toes if your mm -hmm. message is being heard, even oh, if yeah. it's by five people. Yes. And I think that's what make, makes TikTok so interesting because you can have 50 followers and post a video that gets 10 million views. Yeah. No other platform allows for that. Yeah, that's interesting. So following on from that, tell mm -hmm. me your hottest take, anything. Your absolute hottest My take. hottest take. Hmm. Well, um, okay. I think that... <laughs> I think that my hottest take would probably be rooted within relationships and, and feminism, specifically, as we were talking about before, uh, some of the things that men can do. I think that it both benefits and behooves men, meaning I, I think it should be obligatory. I think that men ought to share their 
their their worst maybe characteristics or their worst behaviors with the women in their lives not the women who they're dating they can if they want to but i but what i mean is that men should be upfront about their terribleness <laughs> with people who are vulnerable and so i think that you know if you want to take an intersectionality approach i think for example white folks should share with people of color all the terrible things that they've done and thought as it relates to those groups and that is obviously a very threatening scary thing to do because you wow. could say those things and, and then people could be like okay we're not going to hang out anymore and there's nothing you can do to fix that uh -huh. and i think that experiencing that sort of rejection would be humiliating and humbling enough for people to actually change their behavior yeah um once you experience the real world ramifications and then of course you're still going to get people who you know refuse to admit that they've done anything wrong but i think that doing that is necessary like it's almost therapeutic it, it, it's almost a way for men to see the like the, the the quantifiable observable effects of their terribleness and i think mm -hmm. that that terribleness should be exposed myself included that's so interesting because as you were saying this i, I was thinking what would be that almost confessional space mm -hmm. that reckoning that i have with say my partner or my best friends and the first thing that came to mind is once upon a time i defended an abuser and i will never do that again and it came very close recently and i was like oh this is a little bit too close to the person i used to be and that i don't like anymore so yeah. remembering that yes it, it, i think it may actually be a a good thing for people to practice yeah i agree and i think it would be in many ways cathartic especially mm -hmm. on the more left-leaning side of uh, the political spectrum, because we really do like to get a superiority complex, right? Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we know and believe, right? So like, if you look at the extreme right, never do they say that they know and believe they're doing the morally right thing. They, they, mm -hmm. they want freedom, they want choice, they want oh, to each their own, right? But here on, on, on the left-leaning part, we're really truly trying to be about things like inclusivity and appreciation and acceptance and, and uplifting vulnerable groups. And when we dedicate ourselves to that, we almost forget that we can mess up just as badly as people on the right. Yeah, we can. We really can. And I think holding each other accountable is not about the, the public stoning. It's more about like, right. how can you just be better and do better? Yeah. And, and owning up to that person that you were and owning up to all the shitty things that you have done and saying, okay, I'm going to actively do better and be better. Right. And, and I'll tell you this, um, when it comes to like that big issue that we've been encountering on TikTok, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing a whole lot. It really upsets me, especially with not just the two big cre creators who are involved, but other large creators who subsequently got involved and started doing battle with each other. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to admit that they messed up anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's bad yeah. for the culture. I actually have a post-it here saying, follow up in red letters. <laughs> I'm like, I've got to do it at some point. Right. <laughs> Just give me five minutes and then like <laughs> three days pass, you know? Mm -hmm. the, and this is important to like that entire, going back to how effectively we communicate like this situation. What do you think is the most effective way to help men communicate? Uh, I think that the most effective thing that we can do, and you know, if I didn't believe this, I would have to delete my TikTok. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that the most effective thing that we can do to help men is to stop coddling them. 
Mm -hmm. Just tell them what needs to be heard. When they say something dumb, you let them know that what they're saying is really dumb. And then you correct mm -hmm. them, right? So it's not just that you've made a bad talking point and I'm going to make fun of you for it. It's also that I'm going to show you a better perspective, either by accessing the research or just by engaging in like the basic principles of debate, because I don't cite research mm -hmm. in all of my videos. I just mm -hmm. posted one today where I didn't cite any videos, or I'm sorry, where I didn't cite any sources. It, it was just me unpacking a series of very bad takes and explaining why they're bad takes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just absolutely necessary. I, I get a lot of, I'm not going to use the word tone policing because I'm not sure if you can tone police a white man, but I, I get a lot of like, like, do you really think you're helping? Like, you know, I, I wish you would deliver your message with a little bit more candor. And I'm like, I tried that and it didn't work and people were bored. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there is something to be said about a certain degree of flair that you need to put into the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that is of course backed up by the research on persuasion. We know that it's not just about being logical. You also, I mean, if you want to get to the basics, you need to be credible and you need to be passionate. Uh -huh. And to that end, passion can take a lot of different forms, including use of things like humor, satire, or in my case, uh, some light humiliationism. And that's interesting, the word humiliationism. I've never come across it in academic study. Is it, is it a thing? Is it like... I don't know if there's any academic <laughs> investigations of humiliationism. I borrowed the phrase from like kink culture. So there is a kink mm. known as humiliationism where you become sexually aroused and receive pleasure from being humiliated. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're a sadist, for example, you might enjoy humiliating others. And I have proposed for a very long time now that a lot of these men are addicted to being humiliated. I think in many cases, they know that what they're saying is not driven by fact. They know that what they're saying is incongruent with reality. Mm -hmm. And they are looking for somebody like, for example, Drew Afwalo. They're looking for someone like Drew to drag them over the coals. And then when it happens, they watch it again and again and again. And they get like sexually frustrated because of it, I think. And, you know, then-, then I can't see any other reason. Yeah, yeah. It leads to some ineffective coping mechanisms and some mm -hmm. fetishizations that should probably be unpacked in therapy. And so I think that in many ways, these men post content because they're- subtly looking for somebody to pick what they're saying apart and to prove them wrong so that they can be pointed in a better direction uh, that leads to self-improvement. Now, whether I tell myself that because I want to feel like I'm doing good or not is kind of besides the point, because I do feel like the other half of what I do is validating the people who have been traditionally like oppressed and marginalized. And I think that yeah. there's something to be said about validating those people, especially when it comes to like women who have been like abused or gaslit hearing it from you know a very privileged man in a position of power i think that that does some good mm -hmm. which brings me to my next question like do you think that it feeds into this idea of male guilt mm -hmm. just like white guilt right do you think there's a sense of guilt behind it for me uh, no i've said this many times i'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm a man. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I am white. I am ashamed of men and I am ashamed of whiteness because mm -hmm. those are systemic structures and no good comes from interpersonal accusations 
unless somebody is explicitly engaging in like racist or sexist behavior. But no good comes from those sorts of interpersonal accusations. And I think that just to get a little off branch here, that that's what we're seeing in the States with this discussion of critical race theory. They're trying to frame it as this theory makes white people hate themselves, which is not true. Critical race theory explores the ways in which our systems are sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally racist in in the passing of legislation uh, and in the forging of policy. And if you can teach it from a systemic standpoint, now it's like, well, you don't have to feel guilty because you've not done anything wrong, but you know, silence is compliance. And, and so if you're not actively working against it, then you are helping it. And if you feel that guilt, it's not because your teacher told you to feel guilty. It's because you recognize that you're helping the system that hurts people. Um, and Recognizing and that, your role, yeah. Yeah, and so rather than, you know, introspecting and, and altering one's own behavior and worldview, cognitively, it's much easier to just say, nope, I'm right and they're wrong. And that's where you get people like Jordan Peterson, who he comes in and he says, no, you're right. You are right. And society is wrong. And as long as you keep listening to me, you don't have to do any of the difficult work uh, that that's necessary to unpack your whiteness or, uh, you know, the fact that you're a man. You can just stay right here in your guilt free zone and you never have to think about it ever again. Yeah, which is harmful. It is harmful. My last question. What do you think is the biggest threat to not just women, but women's movements, not just feminism, but like womanism and the idea of women empowerment as a whole in society today. And you feel free to speak on the US alone if that's that's what you feel comfortable. Well, I think this probably applies internationally. I know it applies uh, to the states. The biggest problem we find is in the educational system. Mm-hmm. I think that if people continue to fight tooth and nail to prevent people from, for example, in the States, to prevent people from learning about the blood-soaked history of indigenous genocide and slavery and Japanese internment, things like that. You think about like, you know, the the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, the Tulsa massacre. Uh These are things that happen. Uh If we continue to see people pushing legislation that prevents people from learning about those things, that prevents people from learning about, for example, the history of marriage and the ways in which marriage was constructed as essentially a property exchange. If we stop people from learning that, we will not progress at any level of intersectionality. As education increases, we find that the policies, the citizens, and the behaviors uh, of those citizens change for the better. And, you know, obviously we're imperfect. We're never going to reach like that, uh, what some often refer to as my socialist utopia. Like, we're never going to reach that. There will always be discrepancies based on race, based on gender, based on class, always. But we can actively work to narrow that gap. And if we look historically, if we look back, it's worked. We're doing better, at least here in the States. We're doing better. We still have a long way to go, but we're doing better. Yeah, there is a long way to go. And I think that that's why we're seeing so like this, like deep gasp for breath from mostly old white men who understand that the status quo is shifting and want to maintain their power for generations to come, which is deeply, deeply evil. <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, it, it really all comes back to that. Like, you know, people talk about the pipeline to being alt-right. It really all comes mm-hmm. down to very wealthy, mostly white, mostly men who are interested in preserving their wealth and their status. And if we can continue to educate people, that will become more clear rapidly 
and then what we'll see are policies that damage that particular small but obscenely powerful group of people. I think it happens through education. I like that. Like that that kind of uh, educational disruption. I have to disagree a little bit because okay. as as a Marxist feminist, mm-hmm. I have to believe that revolution is is possible. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I think it's one of the things that keeps me going like one day. <laughs> One day, it'll happen. Yeah, one day, maybe, maybe not in my lifetime, but one day. Yeah, I just want to see the power system toppled. I want to see like the streets run red with the blood of uh, these people who have been hurting, for example, men, and then claiming that they're here to help men and that the only ones who are hurting men are like women. And I, I just want to see them. I want to see them exposed as as much as they can be. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of those extremely powerful men are also addicted to humiliationism. And I think that they would, um, in many ways, enjoy their their own fall from grace. And I would enjoy it just as much. So whatever, if they if they like it, then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, as much as we do have a long way to go, I think um, we have better tools and we have better language. I think we're better armed now mm-hmm. than we ever were before. And I think that's why, at least here in the States, I think that's why we're seeing things like, for example, we are now seeing the most diverse group of elected representatives that this country has ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's still overwhelmingly white, but it's better than it's ever been. And I think that scares a lot of powerful white people. So they're mm-hmm. really trying hard to, mm-hmm. to bring us back to basically, I, guess, I don't know, white landowning men only. I guess that's where they want us to bring <laughs> But it's not uh, going to work. Never worked. The progressive agenda is undefeated historically, and it will remain undefeated because each generation is more progressive than the last. And as the millennials start to come into power, the tolerance for bullshit is going to plummet, which I'm excited about. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. But instead of um, spending money on um, on houses and uh, and yachts and stuff, we'll be spending money on avocados. Right. Yes. Got to have that avocado <laughs> in my latte from Starbucks. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, so, so much. I appreciate this. And um, I wanted to say in preparing for this uh, interview, I watched a lot of your videos and I had my father sitting on the side doing this, like peeking over <laughs> and saying, oh, it makes sense. <laughs> well, that's the goal, right? That's mm-hmm. I want to hear men saying that because mm-hmm. women usually already know yes. most of what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, my dad identifies as feminist. I mean, he raised two girls to, to be who, who we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, he still has a long way to go. And I as think do I. I think recognizing that as men, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a constant work in progress. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, James. And um, I'll hopefully chat to you on TikTok soon. Please do, anytime. Thank you for listening. Again, this is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and I would like to thank my patrons for making this possible. Next week, we'll be tackling the friend zone, this mythical place that women supposedly put men to avoid sleeping with them.